1. History of the American Negro in the Great World War by W. Allison Sweeney Contributing Editor of the Chicago Defender Chapter I Spiritual Emancipation of Nations The March of Civilization World Shocks to Stir the World Heart False Doctrines of the Hun The Iron Hand Concealed The WLBLD Begins to Awaken German Designs Revealed Rumblings in Advance of the Storm Tragedy That Hastened the Day T.O.L.S.T.O.L.E.S. Prophecy Vindication of Negro Faith in Promises of the Lord Dawn of Freedom for All Races the march of civilization is attended by strange influences. Providence which directs the advancement of mankind, moves in such mysterious ways that none can sense its design or reason out its import. Frequently the forces of evil are turned to account in defeating their own objects. Great tragedies, cruel wars, cataclysms of woe, have acted as enlightening and refining agents. Out of the famines of the past came experiences which inculcated the thrift and forehandedness of today. Out of man's sufferings have come knowledge and fortitude, out of pain and tribulation, be a tribute of sympathy the first spiritual manifestation instrumental in elevating the human above the beast. Things worthwhile are never obtained without payment of some kind. Individual shocks stir the individual heart and conscience. Great world shocks are necessary to stir the world conscience and heart, to start those movements to right the wrongs in the world. So long as peace reigned commerce was uninterrupted and the acquisition of wealth was not obstructed. Men cared little for the intrigues and ambitions of royalty. If they sensed them at all, they lulled themselves into a feeling of security through the belief that progress had attained too far. Civilization had secured too strong a hold, and democracy was too firmly rooted for any ordinary menace to be considered. So insidious and far-reaching had become the inculcation of false philosophy summed up in the general term culture that the subjects of the autocratic written empires believed they were being guided by benign influences. Many enlightened men, at least it seems they must have been enlightened. In Germany and Austria men who possessed liberated intellects and were not in the pay of the culturists professed to believe that despotism in the modern world could not be other than benevolent. The satanic hand was concealed in the soft glove, the cloven hoof artistically fitted into the military boot, the tail carefully tucked inside the uniform or dress suit, Fiendish eyes were taught to smile and gleam in sympathy and humor, or were masked behind the heavy lenses of professorial dignity, the serpent's hiss was trained to song, or drowned in crashing chords and given to the world as a sublime harmony. Suddenly the world awoke. The wooing harmony had changed to a blast of war, the conductor's baton had become a bayonet, the soft wind instrument barked the rifle's tone, its notes were bullets that hissed and screamed, tinkling cymbals sounded the wild blare of carnage and sweet-throated horns of silver and brass bellowed the cannon's deadly roar. Civilization was so shocked that for long the exact sequence of events was not comprehended. It required time and reflection to clear away the brain-denumbing vapors of the dream, to reach a realization that liberty actually was tottering on her throne. German propagandists had been so well organized, and so effectively did they spread their poison, especially in the Western world that great men, national leaders were deceived. While men in general were slow to get the true perspective, much later than those at the seat of government, a few far-seeing men had been alive to the German menace. Some English statesmen felt it in a vague way, while in France where the experience of 1870-71 had produced a wariness of all things German, a limited number of men with penetrating, broadened vision, had beheld the fair exterior of Kaiserism, even while they recognized in the background the slimy abode of the serpent. For years they had sounded the warning until at last their feeble voices attracted attention. France, with her traditions of Napoleon, Moreau, Northeasty, 
Berthier and others, with rare skill set about the work of perfecting an army under the tutelage and direction of Schaffer and Fulch. The defense maintained by its army in the earlier part of the struggle provided the breathing space required by the other allies. All through the struggle the staying power of the French provided example and created the necessary morale for the company operating allied forces, until our own gallant soldiers could be mustered and sent abroad for the knockout blow. As is usual where conspiracies to perform dark deeds are hatched a clue or record is left behind, in spite of Germany's protestations of innocence, her loud cries that the war was forced upon her. There is ample evidence that for years she had been planning it, that she wanted it and only awaited the opportune time to launch it. It was a gradual unearthing and examination of this evidence that at length revealed to the world the astounding plot. It is not necessary to touch more than briefly the evidence of Germany's designs, and the intrigues through which she sought world domination and the throttling of human liberty. The facts are now too well established to need further confirmation. The ruthless manner in which the Kaiser's forces prosecuted the war, abandoning all pretense of civilization and relapsing into the most utter barbarism, is enough to convince anyone of her definite and well-prepared program, which she was determined to execute by every foul means under the sun. She had skillfully been laying her lines and building her military machine for more than forty years. As the time approached for the blow she intended to strike, she found it difficult to conceal her purposes. Noises from the armed camp bayings of the dogs of war occasionally stirred the sleeping world, an awakening almost occurred over what is known as the Morocco Incident. On account of the weakness of the Moroccan government, intervention by foreign powers had been frequent. Because of the heavy investment of French capital and because the prevailing anarchy in Morocco threatened her interests in Algeria, France came to be regarded as having special interests in Morocco. In 1904 she gained the assent of Britain and the cooperation of Spain in her policy. Germany made no protest, in fact, the German Chancellor, von Bülow, declared that Germany was not specially concerned with Moroccan affairs, but in 1905 Germany demanded a reconsideration of the entire question. France was forced against the will of her Minister of Foreign Affairs, Delcus, to attend a conference at Algeciras. That conference discussed placing Morocco under international control but because France was the only power capable of dealing with the anarchy in the country, she was left in charge, subject to certain Spanish rights, and allowed to continue her work. The Germans again declared that they had no political interests in Morocco. In 1909, Germany openly recognized the political interests of France in Morocco. In 1911 France was compelled by disorders in the country to penetrate farther into the interior. Germany under the pretext that her merchants were not getting fair treatment in Morocco, reopened the entire question and sent her gunboat Panther, to Aguilar on the west coast of Africa, as if to establish support there, although she had no interests in that part of the country, France protested vigorously and Britain supported her, matters came very close to a war, but Germany was not yet ready to force the issue, her action had been simply a pretext to find out the extent to which England and France were ready to make common cause. She recalled her gunboat and as a concession to obtain peace, was permitted to acquire some territory in the French Congo country. But German newspapers and German political utterances showed much bitterness. Growling and snarling grew apace in Germany, and to those who made a close study of the situation it became evident that Germany sooner or later intended to launch a war. One of the characteristic German utterances of the time, came from Albrecht Wirth, a German political writer of standing, in close touch with the thought and aims of his nation. The utterance about to be quoted may, in the light of later events, 
appear indiscreet, as Germany wished to avoid an appearance of responsibility for the world war, but the minds of the German people had to be prepared and this could not be accomplished without some of the writers and public men letting the cat out of the bag. Worth said, Morocco is easily worth the big war, or several. At best and even prudent Germany is getting to be convinced of this war is only postponed and not abandoned. Is such a postponement to our advantage? They say we must wait for a better moment. Wait for the deepening of the Kiel Canal. For our Navy laws to take full effect. It is not exactly diplomatic to announce publicly to one's adversaries. To go to a war now does not tempt us. But three years hence we shall let loose a world war no, if a war is really planned. Not a word of it must be spoken. One's designs must be enveloped in profound mystery, then brusquely, all of a sudden, jump on the enemy like a robber in the darkness. The heavy-foot German had difficulty in moving with the stealth of a robber, but the policy here recommended was followed. In 1914, the three years indicated by Worth had expired. There began to occur dark comings and goings, mysterious meetings and conferences on the continent of Europe. The German Emperor accompanied by the princes and leaders of the German states, began to cruise the border and northern seas of the fatherland, where they would be safe from listening ears, prying eyes, newspapers, telephones and telegraphs. It became known that the Kaiser was cultivating the weak-minded Russian Tsar in an attempt to win his country from its alliance with England and France. There were no open rumblings of war, but the air was charged with electricity like that priesting a storm. An unaccountable business depression affected pretty much the entire world. Money, that most sensitive of all things, began to show nervousness and a tendency to go into hiding. The bulk of the world was still asleep to the real meaning of events, but it had begun to stir in its dreams, as if some prescience, some premonition had begun to reach it even in its slumbers. Finally the first big event occurred the tragedy that was not intended to accomplish as much but which hastened the dawn of the day in which began the spiritual emancipation of the governments of earth. The Archduke Francis Ferdinand, nephew of the Emperor of Austria, heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary and commander-in-chief of its army, and his wife the Duchess of Hohenberg, were assassinated June 28, 1914, by a Serbian student, Gavrilo Princip. The assassination occurred at Sarajevo in Bosnia, a dependency, or rather, a Slavic state that had been seized by Austria. It was the lightning flash that priested the thunder's mighty crash. Much has been written of the causes which led to the tragedy. Prince it may have been a fanatic, but he was undoubtedly aided in his act by a number of others. The natural inference immediately formed was that the murder was the outcome of years of ill-feeling between Serbia and Austria-Hungary, due to the belief of the people in the smaller state that their aspirations as a nation were hampered and blocked by the German element in the Austrian Empire. The countries had been on the verge of war several years before over the seizure of Bosnia and Herzegovina by Austria, and later over the disposition of Scutari and certain Albanian territory conquered in the Balkan-Turkish struggle. Events are coming to a light which may place a new construction on the causes leading to the assassination at Sarajevo. It was undoubtedly the pretext sought by Germany for starting the Great War. Whether it may not have been carefully planned to serve that object and the Serbian princip, employed as a tool to bring it about, is not so certain. Several years prior to the war, the celebrated Russian, Tolstoy, gave utterance to a remarkable prophecy. Tolstoy was a mystic, and it was not unusual for him to go into a semi-trance state in which he professed to peer far into the future and obtain visions of things beyond the come of average men. 
The Russian Tsar was superstitious and it is said that the German Emperor had a strong leaning towards the mystic and psychic. In fact, it has been stated that the Kaiser's claim to a partnership with the Almighty was the result of delusions formed in his consultations with mediums the modern descendants of the soothsayers of olden times. Tolstoy stated that both the Tsar and the Kaiser desired to consult with him and test his powers of divination. The three had a memorable sitting. Sometime afterwards the results were given to the world. Tolstoy predicted the Great War, and he stated his belief that the torch which would start the conflagration would be lighted in the Balkans about 1913. Tolstoy was not a friend of either Russian or German autocracy, hence his seance may have been but a clever ruse to discover what was in the minds of the two rulers. Germany probably was not ready to start the war in 1913, but there is abundant warrant for the belief that she was trimming the torch at that time, and, who knows, the deluded prince it may have been the torch. The old voted Francis Joseph who occupied the throne of Austria-Hungary, was completely under the domination of the Germans. He could be relied upon to further any designs which the Kaiser and the German warlords might have. The younger man, Francis Ferdinand, was not so easy to handle as his aged uncle. Accounts agree that he was arrogant, ambitious and had a will of his own. He was unpopular in his country and probably unpopular with the Germans. Being of the disposition he was, it is very likely that the Kaiser found it difficult to bend him completely to his will. Being a stumbling block in the way of German aims, is it not reasonably probable that Germany desired to get rid of him, thus leaving Austria-Hungary completely in the power of its tool and puppet? Francis Joseph, and in the event of his death, in the power of the young and suppliant Karl, another instrument easily bent to the German will, the wife of the Archduke, assassinated with him, was a Bohemian, her maiden name being Sophie Chotek. She was not of noble blood as Bohemia had no nobles. They had been driven out of the country centuries before and their titles and estates conferred on indigent Spanish and Austrian adventurers, not being of noble birth. She was but the morganic wife of the Austrian heir. Titles were afterwards conferred upon her. She was made a countess and then a duchess. Some say she had been an actress, not unlikely. For actresses possessed an especial appeal to Austrian royalty. The cruel Habsburgs rendered dull-witted and inefficient by generations of inbreeding. Were fascinated by the bright and handsome women of the stage. At any rate, Sophie Chotek belonged to that virile, practical race Bohemians also called Czechs that gave to the world John Hus, who lighted the fires of religious and civil liberty in Central Europe, giving advent later to the work of Martin Luther. Bohemians had always been liberty-loving. They had been anxious for three centuries to throw off the yoke of Austria. There is no record that Sophie Chotek sympathized with the aims of her countrymen or that she was not in complete accord with the views of her husband and the political interests of the empire. But the experiences of the Germans and Austrians had taught them that a Bohemian was likely to remain always a Bohemian and that his freedom-loving people would not countenance plans having in view the enslavement of other nations. The Germans may have looked with suspicion upon the Bohemian wife of the Archduke and thought it advisable to remove her also. Prinzip was thrown into prison and kept there until he died. No statement he may have made ever had a chance to reach the world. No one knows whether he was a German or a Serbian tool. He does not seem to have been an anarchist, neither does he seem to have been of the type that would commit such a crime voluntarily, knowing full well the consequences. It is not hard to believe that he was under pay and promised full protection. Probably no Bohemian considers Sophie Chotek a martyr, indeed. The evidence is strong that she was not. Her heart and soul probably were with her royal spouse. 
but an interesting outcome island that her assassination, a contributing cause to the war, finally led to the downfall of Germany, the wreck of Austria, the freedom of her native country, and that spiritual emancipation of nations and races, then so gloriously underway. Also, to the thoughtful and philosophic observer of maturing symptoms transpiring continuously in the affairs of mankind, the fate of those nations of earth that in their strength and arrogance mock the master, furnish a striking corroborative vindication of the Negro's faith in the promises of the Lord, the glory and power of his coming, from the date, reckoning from moment and second, that Gavriel Prinzip done to death the heir to the throne of Austria Hungary and his duchess, there commenced not alone a new day, a new hope and emancipation of the whites of earth, empire kingdom, principality and tribe, but of the blacks, the Negro as well, so mysteriously, bewilderingly, moves God his wonders to perform, it was that sublimine added faith in the ubiquity and omniscience of God, the unchangeableness of his word, than which the world has witnessed, known nothing finer, the story of the concurrent causes that projected the Negro into the world war, from whence he emerged covered with glory, followed by the plaudits of mankind, that became the inspiration of this work his story of devotion, valor and patriotism, of a murmuring sacrifice, worthy the pens of the mighty, but which the historian, as best he may will tell, nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice, chapter ii handwriting on the wall likened to Belshazzar the Kaiser's feasts in his heart barbaric pride of the potentates of old German madness for war insolent demands 48 hours to prevent a world war comment of statesmen and leaders the war starts Italy breaks her alliance Germanic powers, wait and found wanting spirit wins over materialism civilizations lamp dim but not darkened, Belshazzar of Babylon sat at a feast, very much after the fashion of modern kings they were good at feasting in those olden days, the farthest limits of the kingdom had been searched for every delight and delicacy, honeyed wines, flamingos tongues, game from the hills, fruits from vine and tree, spices from grove and forest, vegetables from field and garden, fish from stream and sea, every resource of mother earth that could contribute to appetite or sensual pleasure was brought to the king's table, singers, minstrels, dancers, magicians, entertainers of every description were summoned to the palace that they might contribute to the vanity of the monarch, and impress the onlooking nations about him, he desired to be known and feared as the greatest monarch on earth, ruling as he did over the world's greatest city, his triumphs had been many, he had come to believe that his power proceeded directly from the god Bell, and that he was the chosen and anointed of that deity, this was the period of his prime, of Babylon's greatest glory, his kingdom seemed so firmly established he had no thought it could be shaken, but misleading are the dreams of kings, his kingdom was suddenly menaced from without, by Cyrus of Persia, another great monarch, there were also dangers from within, but courtiers and flatterers kept this knowledge from him, priests of rival gods had set themselves up within the empire, spies from without and conspirators within were secretly undermining the power of the entrenched despot, such was Belshazzar in his pride, such his kingdom and empire, and, so it was, this was to be an orgy that would set a record for all time to come, artists and artisans of the highest skill had been summoned to the work of beautifying the enormous palace, its gardens and grounds, innumerable slaves furnishing the labor, the gold and silver of the nation was gathered and beaten into ornaments and woven into beautiful designs to grace the occasion, there was a profusion of the most gorgeous plumage and richest fabrics, while over all were sprinkled in and herd of prodigality, the rarest gems and jewels, it was indeed to be a fitting celebration of the glory of Bell, and the power and magnificence of his earthly representative, 
heathen opulence, heathen pride and sensuality were to outdo themselves. The revel started at a tremendous pace. No such wines and vines ever before had been served. No such music ever had been heard and no such dancers and entertainers ever before had appeared. But, fool that he was, he had reckoned without his host, had made a covenant with death and hell and had known it not. And the hour of atonement was upon him, the handwriting on the wall of the true and outraged God, conveyed the information, short and crisp, that he had been weighed, he and his kingdom in the balance and found wanting, the hour his hour, had struck, the time of restitution and atonement long on the way, had come, Babylon was to fall fell, and for twenty-five centuries its glory and its power has been a story that is told, its magnificence but heaps of sand in the desert where night birds shriek and wild beasts find their lair. In the Kaiser's heart was the same barbaric pride, the same ambition, the same worship of a false god and the same belief that he was the especial agent of that deity. His extravagances of vision and ambition were no less demoralizing to humanity and civilization than those that brought decay and ruin to the potentates of old. He graced them with all the luxury and exuberance that modern civilization without arousing rebellious complaint among his subjects, would permit. His gatherings appeared to be arranged for the bringing together of the bright minds of the empire, that there might be an exchange of thought and sentiment that would work to the good of his country and the happiness of the world. Frequently ministers, princes and statesmen from other countries were present, that they might become acquainted with the German idea its culture working for the good of humanity. Here was the beast mentioned in Revelations in a different guise, wearing the face of benevolence and clothed in the raiment of heaven. There were feasts of which the German people knew nothing, and to which foreign ambassadors were not invited. At these feasts the wines were furnished by Belial. They were occasions for the glorification of the German god of war, of greed and conquest, ambition and vanity, without pity, sympathy or honor. Ruthless, vain, arrogant minds met the same qualities in their leader. Some knew and welcomed the fact that the devil was their guest of honor, perhaps others did not know it. Deluded as they all were and blinded by pride and self-seeking, the same handwriting that told Belshazzar of disaster was on the wall, but they could not or would not see it. There was no Daniel to interpret for them. German madness for war asserted itself in the ultimatum sent by Austria to Serbia after the assassination at Sarajevo. Sufficient time had hardly elapsed for an investigation of the crime and the fixing of the responsibility, before Austria made a most insolent demand upon Serbia. The smaller nation about her innocence of any participation in the murder, offered to make amends, and if it were discovered that the conspiracy had been hatched on Serbian soil, to assist in bringing to justice any confederates in the crime the assassin may have had. Illustration, Negro soldiers on the rifle range at Camp Grant, Illinois being taught marksmanship, an ideal location resembling battle areas in France. Illustration, Medical Detachment 365th Infantry, a representative group of medical officers and their field assistants. This branch of the 92nd Division rendered most valorous service. Illustration, Negro troops drilling, seen at Camp M80, MD, where a portion of the 93rd Division and other efficient units were trained. Illustration, Troopers of 10th Cavalry going into Mexico. These heroic Negro soldiers were ambushed near Sierra Rizal and suffered a loss of half their number in one of the bravest fights on record. Illustration, 10th Cavalry survivors of Sierra Rizal. Despoiled of their uniforms by the Mexicans they arrive at El Paso in overalls. White Scout in center. Each soldier has a bouquet of flowers. Illustration, America's wartime president. 
This photograph of Woodrow Wilson was especially posed during the war, in his study at the White House. Illustration, Drive J. Inouarlandi, Senior Secretary of Colored Men's Department International YMCA. The man largely responsible for success of his race in, Y, work. Illustration, President Woodrow Wilson at head of table and his war cabinet. Left WGMCADO Secretary of the Treasury, Thomas W. Gregory, Betty, GNL. JORCPHU's Daniels, SEC, of Navy, D.F. Houston, SEC, of Agriculture, William B. Wilson, SEC, of Labor, Wright R.O.B.R.D. Lansing, SEC, of State, Newton D. Baker, SEC, of War, A.S. Burleson, Postmaster General, Franklin K. Lane, SEC, of Interior, William C. R.A.D.F.I.L.D., SEC, of Commerce, with a war likely to involve the greater part of Europe hanging on the issue. It was a time for cool judgment, sober statesmanship and careful action on all sides. Months should have been devoted to an investigation, but Germany and Austria did not want a sober investigation. They were afraid that while it was proceeding the pretext for war might vanish, as surmised above. They also may have feared that the responsibility for the act would be placed in quarters that would be embarrassing to them. On July 23rd, 1914, just 25 days after the murder, Austria delivered her demands upon Serbia and placed a time limit of 48 hours for their acceptance, with the fate of a nation and the probable embroiling of all Europe hanging on the outcome. 48 hours was a time too brief for proper consideration. Serbia could hardly summon her statesmen in that time. Nevertheless the little country, realizing the awful peril that impended, and that she alone would not be the sufferer, bravely put aside all selfish considerations and practically all considerations of national pride and honor. The records show that every demand which Austria made on Serbia was granted except one, which was only conditionally refused. Although this demand involved the very sovereignty of Serbia her existence as a nation the government offered to submit the matter to mediation or arbitration. But Austria, cats pawing for Germany, did not want her demands accepted. The one clause was inserted purposely because they knew it could not be accepted, with Serbia meeting the situation honestly and going over 90% of the way towards an amicable adjustment. The diplomacy that could not obtain peace out of such a situation, must have been imbecile or corrupt to the last degree. An American historian discussing causes in the early stages of the war, said, The German Imperial Chancellor pays no high compliment to the intelligence of the American people when he asks them to believe that the war is a life and death struggle between Germany and the Muscovite races of Russia, and was due to the royal murders at Sarajevo. To say that all Europe had to be plunged into the most devastating war of human history because an Austrian subject murdered the heir to the Austrian throne on Austrian soil in a conspiracy in which Serbians were implicated, is too absurd to be treated seriously. Great wars do not follow from such causes, although any pretext, however trivial, may be regarded as sufficient when war is deliberately sought. Nor is the Imperial Chancellor's declaration that the war is a life and death struggle between Germany and the Muscovite races of Russia convincing in the slightest degree. So far as the Russian menace to Germany is concerned, the Staatszeitung is much nearer the truth when its editor, Mr. Ritter, boasts that no Russian army ever waged a successful war against a first-class power. The life-and-death struggle between Germany and the Muscovite races of Russia is a diplomatic fiction invented after German autocracy, taking advantage of the Serbian incident, set forth to destroy France, 
It was through no fear of Russia that Germany violated her solemn treaty obligations by invading the neutrality of Belgium and Luxembourg. It was through no fear of Russia that Germany had massed most of her army near the frontiers of France, leaving only six army corps to hold Russia in check. Germany's policy as it stands revealed by her military operations was to crush France and then make terms with Russia. The policy has failed because of the unexpected resistance of the Belgians and the refusal of Great Britain to buy peace at the expense of her honor. A nearer and equally clear view is expressed for the French by Anne Clemenceau, who early in the war said, For 25 years William I.I. has made Europe live under the weight of a horrible nightmare. He has found sheer delight in keeping it in a state of perpetual anxiety over his boastful utterances of power and the sharpened sword. Five threats of war have been launched against us since 1875. At the sixth he finds himself caught in the toils he had laid for us. He threatened the very springs of England's power, though she was more than pacific in her attitude toward him. For many years, thanks to him, the continent has had to join in a giddy race of armaments drying up the sources of economic development and exposing our finances to a crisis which we shrank from discussing. We must have done with this crown comedian, poet, musician, sailor, warrior, pastor, this commentator absorbed in reconciling Hammurabi with the Bible, giving his opinion on every problem of philosophy, speaking of everything, saying nothing. M. Clemenceau summed up the Kaiser as, another Nero, but Roman flames is not sufficient for him he demands the destruction of the universe. The socialist, Upton Sinclair, speaking at the time, blamed Russia as well as Germany and Austria. He also inclined to the view that the assassination at Sarajevo was instigated by Austria. He said, I assert that never before in human history has there been a war with less pretense of justification. It is, 